please uh, turn with me to Exodus 18. Exodus 18, last week we began looking at this passage as we thought about shepherding in Christ's church and, and what it looks like to have uh, multiple people caring for the needs of one another, and we're going to continue talking about that uh, this morning and hope that's encouraging to you, wherever uh, you are in your, your walk with the Lord, whatever needs exist in your life, that this would be an exciting thing for you to think about as well. Exodus 18, and uh, we're uh, in that portion of Exodus where the people have come out of Egypt, they're traveling through the wilderness, and they're going to arrive at Mount Sinai. Next chapter, we're going to see that the covenant established with the people of Israel and, and begin talking through that covenant and the law. So there's some some pretty uh, pretty heady things ahead for us. And uh, this this week we're in last week we're kind of looking at this transition chapter of of how these people of God are going to be shepherded under God's covenant in in the the coming uh, coming years as as Moses uh, talks through these things with his father-in-law. So if you are able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read this chapter again, refresh ourselves as to what is being discussed here by Jethro and Moses as they, they talk about what God has done and how to shepherd the people of God. Here we are in verse 1 of Exodus 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and shall you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice 
of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. And Father, we do ask for your blessing on this time of looking at your word, and we would ask that you would help us to think rightly about you, and we would think about this task of shepherding. We know that there are needs here. We pray that you would meet them through uh, the faithful ministry of, 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 of people in one another's lives, uh, working through your spirit. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. The Babylon Bee is a satirical Christian news site with with fake news stories, and then we need warnings about that. Now, those are fake news stories on the Babylon Bee. So if someone sends you a news story from the Babylon Bee, it's, it's not real, okay? But it's likely funny. I find myself laughing at the articles on the Babylon Bee often, even whenever I am kind of the, the subject of the joke, or people like me are the, the subject of the joke. For example, there was an article a few months ago uh, and, the, and the title of the headline of the article is First Year Seminarian Ready to Take Over for Senior Pastor, If Necessary. And uh, the, the title made me laugh because I have been a first year seminarian student uh, with perhaps a, an exaggerated sense of my own uh, abilities and capabilities. Here's how the story begins. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, First-year seminarian George Turner, 23, confirmed Friday that, if necessary, he could easily step in to take over Reverend Gary Price as senior pastor at Covenant Presbyterian. Turner realized it probably wouldn't be that hard as he sat through Reverend Price's Easter sermon over break during his first semester at Divinity School. And then the article goes and kind of mentions uh, George Turner, 23, first-year seminarian, some of his experience and how he's using that experience Citing the influence of the last six weeks of course readings, he began to creep the senior pastor's theology, and then uh, drawing on his recent five-page research paper, uh, Turner began to think about the church's worship structure. And then I I love the the last line of the article, uh, out on a hospital visit, Reverend Price was unavailable for comment, okay? I love that because what, what, is, what is the senior pastor doing? The senior pastor is being critiqued by this younger leader. He's, he's actually doing the ministry, doing the work of shepherding. Now, I, I, I don't think, I, I hope, that I have never been so arrogant, even as a, a young, younger uh, person. I don't think I've ever been so arrogant as to think that I could, could take over for any of the, the senior pastors that I've worked with. But I'm, I'm confident that at different stages of my ministry, I have, as I've said, had a, a heightened perception of my own ability. On the one hand, that's bad. On, on the other hand, at least I knew it. I think I, I knew that I was combining in myself at times a, a dangerous combination of arrogance with lack of experience. Those two things both kind of existed in my, church, in my heart, and I recognized that it was a danger and I was grateful that God placed me in a context of shared leadership where other people around me were able to, to help me understand, hey, this is, this is a dangerous combination. We're, we're talking about people's lives here. And your arrogance and this, this belief that you have the ability in and of yourself to, to do tasks, to do this ministry is, is dangerous because people's lives are at stake. The, the danger of an arrogant young leader is that, that he will begin to, to believe that that the ministry exists for himself. And so instead of, of, of understanding that you've given, been given this task of ministry to meet the needs of other people, you, you believe that this ministry exists for your own self-aggrandizement. That's why I think the last line of that humorous article is, is so pointed, that this, the senior pastor is unavailable for comment because he's actually doing the ministry. Now, that, that was something I, I think I struggled with more when I was younger, 
now today, I'm, I'm closer to 40 than 30. I'm closer to 40 than 38. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready uh, to enter, <laughs> I'm getting ready to enter this, this, these next few decades of ministry. And I, I think there are going to be some, maybe the same temptations, but I think they're going to express themselves in different ways, right? So as a, a younger leader, my, my temptation might have been to say, uh, I've got the, the knowledge and the, the, the inherent ability to, to do these things. Now I think in the next few decades, my temptation might be to look at disdain with people who don't have as much experience as I have. To, to, to look, you know, I, this article makes me laugh, I think, more so now than it would have as a younger person. Because, like, oh, these, these younger leaders, these, you know... It makes me cringe how often I hear millennial jokes, right? But there's, there's a certain part of my heart that I think is going to resonate with that is the older I get. Now, now, what's the problem there? The problem is that that same temptation to, to believe that, that I've been placed in a leadership position because of my own ability or, because, or that I have, that the resources of this position exist to make me look at that, that same temptation exists a temptation that can cause me to forget the reason that I and others have been entrusted with ministry, a leadership type ministry. I've been entrusted with ministry so that I can humbly meet the needs of people. And there is a, a temptation that exists in, in all shepherds, I think, to, to forget that, that fundamental purpose that we've been entrusted with ministry. Last week, we began talking about the church and, and needs within the church. We, we mentioned how important it is for us to, to realize that there are, are tremendous needs that exist in this body. Whenever you walk in here on a Sunday morning, you're, you're sitting down in your chair, and you are a person with needs, and you are surrounded by, by other people with needs. You're surrounded by young people who have tremendous spiritual and, and physical needs. You're surrounded by not just children with needs. You're surrounded by young adults with needs. You're surrounded by young married couples with needs. You're surrounded by parents with needs. You're surrounded by widows, widowers with needs. You're surrounded by, brother, by brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through tremendously difficult times. And if, if you are not conscious of that, you're not conscious of something that God would call you to be conscious of. We are surrounded by brothers and sisters with tremendous needs. And as we saw last week, the good news is that we have a great shepherd, God the Father. We have a, a great shepherd, Jesus Christ the Son, who desires to, to meet our needs, and not only desires to meet our needs, but Jesus Christ in himself has all that we need for life and godliness. And, and so all the solutions for our problems can be found in him. And we also saw last week that God, in his grace, has given the church under shepherds. So Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. And we saw last week that God has given the church under shepherds. People that God has entrusted with the task of meeting the needs of others. But it's a great burden. It, it's a tough job. In fact, I, I don't know how you can, can escape unscathed in a shepherding ministry where you're inundated with, with the needs of people at the lowest, sometimes the lowest points of their lives. I, I don't know how you can come from that unscathed unless you are a cold bordering on psychotic individual, right? It's difficult. It's a difficult ministry that God has called his people to. God has called us to meet one another's needs, to shepherd his people. And I said, as, as we looked at this passage last week, kind of the main idea that I want you to grasp with me as we look at Exodus 18 is that with Jesus Christ as the, the chief shepherd, 
God maximizes his glory by using multiple under-shepherds to care for his flock. So with Jesus Christ as the, the chief shepherd, God maximizes his glory by using multiple under-shepherds to care for his flock. As multiple people take upon themselves that task of caring for one another, God's glory is maximized. God receives the, the, the maximum amount of glory as, as multiple under-shepherds are used to care for the flock, and we'll, we'll talk about why that is, continue to talk about why that is as we go through uh, the message this morning. As I mentioned last week, there's, there's kind of three goals that I have as we, as we walk through this text. One goal would just be that you, you understand the structure of shepherding at Bethany Community Church, that we all kind of buy into this vision of, of how we shepherd. And I don't know if you sensed this last week, I struggled last Sunday. I kind of struggled during the week before this last week because I thought about how to how to articulate everything. I don't know if you sense this, but there's some lack of precision sometimes when I'm going to be talking about these these wisdom principles. And the lack of precision is that sometimes when I'm talking, I'm kind of thinking about as I talk about under shepherds. Sometimes I'm I'm thinking about elders, kind of those that group of men that God has entrusted with the task of, of ministry underneath the great shepherds. Sometimes I'm kind of thinking about that group, and then sometimes when I talk about shepherding, I'm talking about all of us and kind of this tiered ministry that Jethro describes for Moses and that we know should exist in the church. And so um, hopefully what I lack in precision, I make up for in application. <laughs> so hopefully that we all see how we fit into this, this, this call by God to be involved in shepherding. So one goal is that we understand this structure and, and buy into this vision of ministry. The, the second goal would be that we all commit to being a part of it, that, that all of us would say, okay, I, I understand that I have a responsibility to be involved in the lives of other people. I, I can't just come in here on a Sunday morning or uh, come to a care group or be involved in a Sunday school class or maybe go to a Wednesday night. So I, can't just, I can't just come in and not be involved in, in meeting needs and being involved in people's lives and caring for them. And so that the, my other goal would be that we would all commit to, to caring for one another as God calls us to. And then a third goal that I would have would be that all of us would understand where we can turn when we have need. We'd say, okay, I understand the structure, I'm committed to it, and I understand how as I encounter needs in my life, I understand where I can turn to receive care and counsel and just loving shepherding. So hopefully that's what we accomplish together uh, this morning. So remember last week we began looking at this, and uh, the first principle we saw last week is that shared leadership flourishes where the gospel is proclaimed and God's glory is magnified. And we talked about how Jethro comes to Moses, and as Moses tells his father-in-law all that's happened, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's talking about God's deliverance. Moses doesn't tell Jethro, let me tell you what I did first, and then, then they tell you what I did next, and let me tell you about me, me, me. Moses, as he shares with his father-in-law, is very uh, God-centered in what he relates. This is what God did. This is how God delivered. He proclaims the gospel. And we saw in a, in a healthy church, in a church that is practicing shared biblical leadership in a healthy way, that's, that's going to be the ethos. It's going to be a church that is, is focused on the gospel and proclaiming God, not ourselves, and is interesting about, interested in having God's glory magnified, not our own. Second principle we looked at, Shared leadership, shared leadership requires humility to receive criticism and, and listen to counsel. If we are going to be a church of, of healthy shepherds, healthy elders, healthy care group leaders, healthy Sunday school leaders, children's workers, if we're going to be healthy shepherds, we're going to have a church in which we are humble, willing to receive criticism, and willing to listen to, to godly counsel, to both give and, and receive godly counsel. Then here's a, a third wisdom principle. We began talking about this last Sunday. Shared leadership recognizes the limitations of any one individual shepherd. Shared leadership recognizes the limitations of, of any one individual shepherd. Here's what Jethro as he sees Moses 
engaged in, in meeting the needs of all these people that come to Moses, and Moses from morning till night is, is helping them decide their cases. Here's what Jethro says. Look at verse 18. He says, You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Here, Jethro is recognizing that Moses simply doesn't have the capacity to successfully do all that he's trying to accomplish. As I mentioned last week, that Hebrew word for heavy is kaved. And I, when I was trying to memorize that word, I told you I thought of this, this big, gigantic cow, a ka, a cow, trying to, trying to, trying to sit on a, a bed. And it, it worked for me. I don't know. But it, that, that's, that's kind of the picture here, this big, fat cow sitting on this little tiny bed and crushing it. And, and that's, that's this idea of burdensome, heavy. Here's this, this one man, Moses, and he's, he's trying to support all this ministry. And it's, it's simply too great for him. He, he can't do it. He can't withstand the weight of this awesome responsibility. And Jethro gets that. Jethro understands it. And whatever, whatever context of shepherding you find yourself in, you need to understand, I need to understand, that you and I don't have the ability to, to do all ministry. We are insufficient in and of ourselves, whether you are a pastor elder, whether you are a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or you're working in Awana or you're uh, shepherding people within your care group or you are uh, in the biblical counseling ministry. Whatever you're doing, you are insufficient for that ministry. Charles Spurgeon uh, my wife Whitney has been reading a, just read a biography on Spurgeon. Was kind of sharing some things with me. And Charles Spurgeon was a, a pastor who, even though he had, in some senses, just this profound ministry, amazing ministry, speaking to thousands and thousands of people, he was burdened with this incredible, debilitating depression. And listen to what he. He writes, this is in his book, Lectures to My Students, where he's talking to, to other future pastors. He says, here and there, we might meet with an old man who cannot remember that he was ever sick for a day. So occasionally you might meet an old man who's like, yeah, I can't really remember being sick. But that's, that's unusual, says Spurgeon. The great mass of us labor under some form or other of infirmity, either in body or mind. And Spurgeon realizes that this, this weakness that we have is, is actually for the glory of God. He writes, instruments shall be used, but their intrinsic weakness, their intrinsic weakness shall be clearly manifested. There shall be no division of the glory, no diminishing the honor due to the great worker. In other words, as our as our weaknesses are manifested, we can be tools, sure, but as we're tools, our weakness becomes apparent. And that way, there's no sharing of glory. There's not like, well, you know, uh, that, that, that leader sure is a, a gifted leader. No, in our leader's work, we see God working through them, and we see their weaknesses, and the, the gospel is proclaimed in weakness. It says, the man shall, this is Spurgeon writing, the man shall be emptied of self and then filled with the Holy Spirit. All shepherds are limited. And, and to be transparent with, with you, uh, this is not something at times that I enjoy thinking about. It, it's hard to know what, what of my desire is born out of a godly desire to, to care for people and, and, and out of a fleshly desire to be, to be seen as gifted. But, but it's hard for me at times, to acknowledge limitation. I, I want to be seen, I think, in my flesh. I want to be seen as, as the leader who can, can do it all. I can do this. I can, can teach. I can, can care. I can do, but I'm limited. And a failure on my part to acknowledge that hurts the church. It's, it's not just, in other words, it's not just that I'm going to burden myself, but if I believe that I can, or I, I try to convey that I can do it all, it hurts the church because needs aren't going to be met other leaders aren't going to be equipped to do the work that God has called them to do so that needs can be met, that the, the discipling can take place. I, harm, I potentially harm Christ's church when I don't acknowledge that I have limitations, profound limitations. God's glory and the gospel are proclaimed in my 
weaknesses. Our church must be a place with multiple shepherds. If, if any one individual was strong enough to meet the needs of everyone, we'd, we'd have to worship him or her. Instead, it's, it's God. Our weaknesses point the people we're caring for to God. Shared leadership recognizes that limitation. Here's a, here's a fourth principle. Shared leadership enables shepherds to focus on biblical priorities. Now, look down the, at the text with me, if you would, and remember what's taken place. Jethro comes, and he, he observes his son-in-law engaged in this really long judging session, morning till night. A person comes up, and a person comes up. And, and Jethro, remember we talked about this wise, humble way to give and receive criticism. Jethro says, help me understand what's going on. And Moses responds and says, okay, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, verse 15 because the people come to me to inquire of God. So there's a recognition that I have this unique ability to understand God's teaching, his precepts, his laws. Verse 16, so when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Now, why had this this burden taken place? Well, maybe there had been just years of when the people were in slavery. There was no one else that could there wasn't the legal mechanism in place to, to settle disputes. Maybe you're just talking about hundreds of thousands of people, and so, of course, there are going to be lots of needs. Maybe Moses is just a, a caring individual with some capability, and so he, he wants to do this. Whatever the case, Jethro, Jethro now listens to what Moses says. He, he acknowledges that, that Moses has this unique ministry, he, he, he's listening to what Moses said earlier, but now he's giving him this advice. And look at verse 19. He says, I'm going to give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. So he recognizes this unique leadership position that Moses has. And then in verse 20, he, he acknowledges and, and reminds Moses that Moses has this unique teaching ministry. He says, you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. So Moses, you have a, you have a teaching job. You have unique access to the statutes and laws of God. And so you need to focus on making sure that the people understand what God wants them to know and do. You come later to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses has understood this. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses is talking to the people of Israel and says, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Don't add to the word that I command you. Don't take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. In other words, Moses is saying, okay, I'm going to give you the commandments. Here's what God says. Now, take these commandments. This is in Deuteronomy 4. Take these commandments, these statutes, these laws, and now, now go live. Here's the land, go live and take these commandments with you. Live according to these commandments. And Jethro says, look, Moses, buddy, Sonny, if you don't teach this, the commandments and the laws, then the, the people aren't going to know what they're supposed to do as they, they go out and they live their lives. They, they need to start with this. You need to be in charge of making, you have a unique position to teach this so that, so that people can, can apply it in various circumstances. He's going to talk about the structure that should be laid out. And, and, but this, this is crucial. And if, Moses, if you don't do this, the, the people are going to flounder. You need to start with this, this priority of the teaching ministry. And we see this, we see this throughout Scripture, right? We see that there are multiple shepherds, and yet at, at times, we see in Scripture, there is one leader, who, or sometimes one or two, who are tasked with this, this ministry of, of teaching, proclaiming the Word. We see it with Ezra. Ezra's unique position as a, a priest to, to proclaim the Word. We, we see... We see it with Timothy. Timothy is supposed to appoint other elders, and yet at the same time, he's to, he's to preach the word. He has a unique teaching ministry. We see it with Moses. 
each of us in shepherding have unique ministries that God has called us to. Acts chapter 6, we see deacons established to meet the needs of widows, and we see there to do that unique ministry so the apostles can do their unique ministry of, of teaching and praying. And if we don't, as, as a church and as individuals, grasp onto this idea of shared leadership, we're not going to be able to fulfill the biblical priority of ministry that God's called us to. And so, for example, just thinking about this, this personally, if I try to be the leader who does it all, I'm going to, to fail in that most essential task that God has given me of, of doing the proclamation. Here's the teaching now. Now we all apply this. And a church that doesn't have a pastor focused on, a teaching pastor focused on that ministry is a church that's going to flounder, Right? There's a great quote. I, I read this when we were a, a Sunday school class before we planted the church, and I may have read it one other time. I'm not sure, but it's a quote that um, one or two people have used against me several times. Hey, remember what you said? It's, it's great. It's, it's long. I'm going to read a larger portion of it. It's written by an unknown congregation member about his or her pastor, years ago, it mentions a typewriter, so you know it's a little bit old. But And, and by the way, uh, these things are figurative. Some of this is hyperbole. Don't literally do this to your teaching pastor. It says, um, okay, and, and the idea here is we're thinking about the priority of the teaching ministry and, and staying focused. This is about focus. Focus on the Word of God. What do you do with your, your pastor? What do you do with your pastor? your teaching pastor, fling him into his office, tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing lists, lock him up with his books and his typewriter, or his computer, iPad, and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before Scripture and broken hearts and the flock of lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our community who who knows about God, throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever spouting remarks. Stop his tongue forever tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. Make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his, his church success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Again, figurative. Put water in his gas tank, give him a Bible, tie him to the pulpit, and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, quiz him, examine him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, of batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrists. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it day and night. Sir, we would see Jesus. And when at last, long last, he dares essay the pulpit, he dares approach the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper, you can digest the television commentaries, you can think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary drives, you can bless assorted baked potatoes and green beans ad infinitum better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread written and rewritten until he can stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. Break him across the board of his ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for, for heavenly wisdom. And give him no escape until he's back against the wall of the word. And sit down before him 
and listen to the only word he has left, God's. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to, to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come at last to speak it backward and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. There's more there, but, but, but I think you get the idea, right? That sort of priority upon the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, can't take place if a shepherd's attention is distracted. And, and the same is true for each of your shepherding ministries too, right? Jethro understands the, the importance of, of the proclamation of the Word of God and says, focus on that, Moses. Moses and the people expected him to be both teacher and judge of, of everyone, and, and, and that cannot happen. A church cannot be healthy if every leader is trying to accomplish everything. Shared leadership enables shepherds to focus on, on biblical priorities. Here's the fifth principle. Shared leadership equips other leaders as it entrusts them with ministry. This, this is a beautiful thing, right? Verse 21 begins with Jethro saying, look, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and, and hate a bribe. Jethro is telling Moses, don't, don't just look for the leaders who have the administrative capability or who are prestigious in the community. He says, here's some character things that you need to look for in these people who are going to be entrusted with the task of shepherding. This is a community of faith. It's not a corporation. It's a family. And the authority in this family belongs to Christ. And all other authority is, is simply derived authority. Parents and, and elders and Sunday school teachers, th- their authority is, is simply derived from God. There's nothing intrinsic about that authority. And God says, look, I want all of my people to disciple others. I want them to be engaged in this task of, of discipling. And it begins by finding people who have the character that I would desire them to have and the willingness to shepherd. It's the same in our community of faith, right? Paul and and Titus tells Titus, look, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you would put in order what remained and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he describes the the character qualities of, of these shepherds. If anyone is above reproach, this is the elders, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife and his children are, uh, sorry, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so there are these, these character qualifications that allow shepherds to, to do the task of shepherding. And here he's talking about elders. But then we also see that these elders are to be, again, it's this, this tiered idea of ministry that Jethro is going to describe to Moses here as we go through Exodus 18. These, these shepherds are to be equipping others. It's what we see in Ephesians 4, 2 Timothy 2, the things you've been that have been taught, uh, the things you have been taught and trust to faithful men who will be able to shepherd others also, teach others also. You say, well, um, what, what if I don't want to participate? <laughs> what we see here is that um, shared leadership, a shared leadership structure is going to be, is, is relying upon it. It's constantly focused on equipping other leaders. That's, that's, that has to be happening all the time. You say, well, what if I, what if I just want to say pass? <laughs> what if I don't want to be involved in in this this responsibility? Sorry, is it still on me? <laughs> Fly away, little Gandalf. There, a big eagle is going to come back later. Where am I? 
and say, what, what if I don't want to be involved in this uh, discipleship structure? What if, what if I don't want to, to care for the needs of, of other people? What we see is that if, if you're not willing to engage in discipleship, you're not willing to engage in the Christian life. In other words, you can't just say, well, I became a Christian. I just don't want to become a disciple. Scripture doesn't draw that distinction. A person who's a believer is a disciple and a disciple maker. We see this in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is talking and he says, if anyone wants to come after me, you want to be my disciple, you want to be a believer, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The, the person who follows after Jesus Christ in discipleship is, is a person who's becoming a Christian. They're, they're placing their faith in him. They're recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And as a person places their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, what they need to understand is they are, by faith, committing to the road of discipleship. Being involved in the lives of others. The Great Commission at the end of, of Matthew. What are we doing? We're engaging in, in making the task of making disciples. We're going teaching, baptizing, baptizing, teaching, people to observe all that God has commanded. We don't have the option, we don't have the option of engaging in the Christian life without engaging the lives of other people. You cannot say, I'm a Christian, I'm a part of the community of faith, without being involved in other people's lives. There must be a commitment on your part to being part of the structure that is caring for one another. Here's the sixth principle. Shared leadership implements wisdom principles as it teaches eternal truths. Shared leadership in a church, and this is comforting for me, implements wisdom principles as it, as it teaches eternal truths. And what happens here is, is Jethro gives Moses this advice. Hey, set up, set up these groups of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And God did not appear before Jethro and say, do this. In fact, Jethro, even as he says, hey, hey even as he gives his advice, it's, it's tempered with, you know, if this seems good to you, if this isn't, in other words, don't do this if it contradicts what God says, but I think this is going to be helpful for you is what Jethro is saying. Now, this is comforting for me because it gives us freedom in Christ and obedience to God to implement wisdom principles as we try to, to teach and be obedient to eternal truths. Now, here are three thoughts about wisdom principles in a church. And I think this is helpful for you as you think about your involvement in a church and what a church is doing. One thing is this. One thought is this. Wisdom principles can't drive ministry. In other words, you can't say, okay, I've, I've got this cool new fad, I've read this new book, and, and it's talking about doing this in the church, and man, that, man, now I am pumped, and that's going to be what fuels ministry. And so I've got this purpose-driven that, or this desiring that, or this simple this, this five steps to this, and that, man, that's what I'm excited about. Wisdom principles, kind of, wisdom principles of how to operate, th- those can't be the fuel for your ministry. Also, wisdom principles, a second thought here, wisdom principles can't contradict divine revelation. Jethro can't say, hey, look, I know God said that you were to be about pursuing his glory and worshiping him, being a kingdom of priests. You're going to see, you know what? I got a better idea. Um, let's, start, let's start a, um, you know, a restaurant or you know, whatever it is, this manna stuff. I think we can, I think we can market it here. You're... Your wisdom principles can't contradict divine revelation. I can't say, you know what, I think a good wisdom principle for a Sunday morning, I think I, instead of preaching long sermons, I should throw out candy, chocolate candy to everyone. That's what I should do instead of, instead of preaching the Bible. That, that might be effective for some people. It might, might come more often, but it doesn't fulfill the biblical mandate of what a pastor is supposed to do, and it contradicts it. So wisdom principles in a church about how to organize it or what to do can't contradict divine revelation. And that kind of brings me to the third thought. Wisdom principles are, are tools. They're tools that help us accomplish what God desires us to do as a church. Wisdom principles are, are tools that we can use to help us be obedient to what God has told us to do. So, for example, at our church, we 
we have a purpose statement. Now, nowhere does, does God say you need a purpose statement, but our purpose statement is it's biblical truth. We exist to glorify God as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and prepare people to worship him forever. That's, that's a helpful wisdom. It's good wisdom principle to have a statement that helps you articulate what God wants you to do. We've been talking as leaders about, okay, how do we help people move through the, 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 the process of discipleship? And we kind of thought, you know what, it might be helpful to come up with three words to kind of help people understand how to move through the process of discipleship. Uh, membership, ministry, multiplication. So mem- committing to the body, however God has called you to do that through membership, and then um, being in every, every believer in our church should be involved in ministry, and then every, every believer should be involved in multiplication and caring for other people. Now, there's nothing, that's, that's wisdom. Those things aren't going to be what draw it. In three years, we may come up with a, a better way to articulate what we, what we want to see happen, but that, that's, that's something to help us fulfill biblical mandates. And then, okay, what's the structure? We're going to have perhaps care group leaders and other shepherds help help people think through where they're at in, in that, that process of discipleship. What is that? That's, it's, it's, it's wisdom principle helping us fulfill biblical mandates, right? Here's the last principle I want us to think about. Shared leadership values discipleship over authority as it cares for the flock. Fifth principle, talked about equipping other leaders. Here we're talking about the flock. Shared leadership, as you commit to shared leadership, you're saying discipleship, caring for the needs of people, is, is far, far more important than me having authority as a leader. Jesus would tell his disciples, look, the rulers of the Gentiles are all about authority. It, and then he says, in, in strong negation of that idea, it shall not be so among you. A leader who is concerned about preserving authority in the church for the sake of that authority, is a person who does not understand the gospel and what Jesus Christ has called leaders to. It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. The purpose of leadership is service. Whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love this passage in Numbers where, where Moses is, is talking about the burden of his ministry and and he asks God to help him, and God says, okay, I'm going to pour out the, the Spirit upon uh, other leaders, and that happens. And there are two leaders that the Spirit is poured out on who, who aren't with Moses when it happens. And Joshua, this, this young man, comes to Moses, and he's upset. He goes, man, Moses, you need to stop these two guys because they're kind of doing this thing on their own. And, and I love what Moses says in response. This is the response of every leader who understands why God has entrusted them with leadership. Moses says, look, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's the right way to understand leadership. You and I have been brought into relationship with one another for a period of time. And God God has said, I'm going to give some shepherds to Bethany Community Church. But the purpose of these shepherds is, is not that they would receive some sort of perverted glory for ministry. But the purpose of these leaders, these shepherds, is that they would consistently and unwaveringly care for and point to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, in whom all needs are met. Let me read a little bit from Ezekiel 34. This is a passage that I read with a, a more diverse group of shepherds one time. And it was very, I was a young man, very young, uh, maybe 20, 22, maybe as old as 24. And this, this is what spoke to me. I wasn't consciously, as a leader, thinking about my own glory, but, but this, is what, this is what God says to the shepherds of Israel. He says, 
should not shepherds feed the sheep? And as soon as I, that's in verse 2, as soon as I heard those words, I was, I was convicted. Shouldn't shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones. You don't feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened. The sick you've not healed up. The injured you've not bound up. The strayed you've not brought back. The lost you've not sought. And with force and harshness you've ruled them. A shepherd exists to to, to bind the hurting, to, to care for the, to find the lost, to care for the sick. That's, that's why a shepherding ministry has even been given to a shepherd. And as, as I think about that, as I think about even now, my, my failure in, in fulfilling that perfectly, I thank God for multiple of shepherds, others who can care for the, the ways in which I fail, and that there is a great shepherd to whom I can point others. And, and listen, this is so beautiful. Listen to what Ezekiel goes on to say as he talks about all these, these shepherds and, and their, their failures. Listen to what he says in verse 22. So these are bad shepherds, and he says, I, I will rescue my flock. Whose flock is this? It's God's flock. Who's going to rescue it? God will. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And listen to this, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And how beautiful it is to think about that. That with Jesus Christ, as the great shepherd, I, as an under-shepherd, you, as shepherds in our weaknesses can say, look, I, I, don't, I don't have this thing down. But God has placed me here at a moment of time in my weakness to point you to someone who can care for you far better than I can, right? And as a, as a friend, you can come alongside another friend and say, okay, God has placed me here at this moment in your life to tell you about the great shepherd who, who can who can meet your needs, who can fulfill the things that I can't fulfill for you. Let me tell you about him. Let me meet these needs for you by, by pointing you to the great shepherd. The shepherd who doesn't lose any sheep. Who lays down his life for the flock. With Christ as the great chief shepherd, God maximizes his glory in the church as he provides multiple under-shepherds care for his flock. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. We thank you for every need that that is met and fulfilled in him. We pray that our faith and our trust would be in him for eternal life, and we pray this in his name. Amen.